This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Lily Lukow. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight's program focuses on health equity, social determinants of health, and public health. We bring you an interview with the Executive Director of the Bernalillo Health Equity Council, Enrique Cardiel, and a conversation with Katie Kerby, a fourth-year medical student at the Latin American School of Medicine in Havana, Cuba, and our weekly vaccine equity segment. Our first song of the night is Respect by Aretha Franklin. Enjoy. Enrique Cardiel has lived in District 19 and worked as a public health professional there for over 25 years. He serves as the executive director of the Bernalillo Health Equity Council. Tonight, Enrique talks to us about health equity in New Mexico, vaccine equity, and the mission of the council he founded. Here's our interviewer, Barbara Ramirez, speaking with Enrique Cardiel. This is Barbara Ramirez with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Enrique Cardiel, who is the Executive Director of the Bernalillo Health Equity Council. Enrique has lived in District 19 and worked as a public health professional for over 25 years. Enrique has also worked in the legislature as a lobbyist for public health initiatives for many years. Enrique Cardiel, welcome back to Generation Justice. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here with you all. Please tell us more about yourself. Um, well, you know, I, I'm Chicano. Uh, I was raised in Southern California. Uh, part of my ancestral background as well as Chicano is also Cahuila. And uh, part of my family through the matrilineal portion of that, you know, is Olone from Northern California. Uh, you know, and there's some thoughts that uh, one of my abuelos was Yaqui, um, but, you know, from way back before people were registered, so there's no documentation on any of that. Uh, besides doing public health work, I, I do different community organizing projects. I've been a part of La Raza Unida for almost 30 years. No, this year is 30 years. Uh, and also do been parts of like neighborhood associations and parent-teacher organizations. Uh, I play music with uh, a group called Las Otras that does social justice music. Uh, I play uh, with a group called Sin Limite, which does um, rancheras and jazz and blues, uh, cumbias. Uh, and I do rope art and leather art and I was a poet for a little while, um, and I have a great family. Uh, I've been married uh, for 33 years now, and um, have two great kids and a great grandson, or a wonderful grandson. 
he's not my great grandson. Este, and yeah, just really committed to public health and social justice uh, and nuestra cultura and hope that uh, we figure out dealing with climate change so that uh, future generations uh, have uh, at least close to the quality of life that I had. Uh, you know, that's going to take us a lot of work at the rate we're going. So I uh, hope we can do that. And, uh, and that to me is also public health. So and all of those things, art and culture and family and community uh, are all important parts of public health. And I appreciate Generation Justice for all the work they've done all these years. Uh, I remember when they first started out. And so it's exciting to see it continue. Thank you so much, Enrique, for um, always being here for your community. And it's so exciting to have you back on the GJ Airwaves. You have worked as a public health professional for over 25 years. And the Bernalillo Health Equity Council is a partner in some of our work in vaccine equity. Please talk to us about the importance of vaccine equity and how it relates to health equity in our state. You know, vaccine equity is vital to health equity. And, and let me say before I forget, you know, I think the only way we're gonna get health equity is to get social equity. And the only way we're gonna get social equity is to have equity and power. So it's why I think organizing is such an important part of public health work. Uh, and something that discussing the way I do around power is not always uh, okay from like government jobs or sometimes, you know, different nonprofits, but I think it's key. And that lack of power uh, is part of why a lot of people of color uh, and even uh, working class uh, white folks don't trust some government or medical systems, you know, because we've seen uh, how that can go bad and how that can be abused. And so what that does, it also hurts us, you know, for things like getting this vaccine, uh, which is important, right? Vaccines, you know, will keep people from dying, will keep people from going to the hospital. and um, we already know that working class people and people of color die at higher rates, right, than owning class folks or white folks. And so really having an understanding of, of the safety of vaccines and, you know, the usefulness of vaccines is a, a key issue. And so we try to encourage that, you know, we encourage people uh, to continue to mask up uh, as a way to slow down transmission of COVID and other diseases, uh, and also know that vaccines have, you know, reduced or ended diseases in on the planet. And so uh, those things are important. You know, I understand perspectives that are against vaccines for different reasons, uh, you know, but recently the um, idea that uh, the COVID vaccines would would be dangerous or implanting a chip and those kind of things are are just false and uh, you know having to deal with the reality of we were in an emergency crisis situation and so it was important to develop something quickly uh, more so than usual so I think uh, getting that to an even level would have kept us from having uh, the number of deaths 
be equitable across all groups and not higher among people of color like what we had um, during COVID. And because of climate change, we're more likely to have another pandemic of some sort less than 100 years from now, right? This was like a 100-year type of pandemic. Uh, it's likely that the next one won't be 100 years from now, that it'll be sooner. And so getting that figured out now would be important. You know, Just the same as there's 100-year fires and 100-year floods or 1,000-year fires and 1,000-year floods happening every year now. They're no longer, you know, hundreds of years or dozens of years apart. Yeah, you bring really important points about the the climate crisis that we're in and just the health crisis that we're in also. Um, Enrique, I wanted to ask about the areas of health equity that the council, the health equity council is focused on. Okay. Really, the areas of focus have been uh, around substance use, you know, so uh, that's been one of the key areas, again, because as a nonprofit, right, when you're funded, uh, you do what your funders kind of want you to focus on. And so, but we've expanded also to include, you know, healthy eating and active living. So trying to make sure there's equity around access to healthy food but also healthy environments, right? Uh, have enough green space, have enough trees. You know, as an example, uh, the part of the city with the least, one of the least uh, tree canopies is the International District. And it's also the most densely populated part of the city and, you know, a very high um, person of color uh, part of the city. So it's seriously a, a equity issue to just not have trees and people again don't necessarily think of trees as public health but they are uh, for a lot of reasons um, and we're also looking at policies now a lot more than we were before so uh, looking at environmental health policies air quality policies um, policies around medication access women's health uh, all of those are important issues for us. And so we try to include equity in everything we do, which is part of why we changed our name from Bernalillo County Community Health Council to the Health Equity Council, so that we always get to remember that that's where we center our work. And so that other folks hopefully help hold us accountable to work and focus on equity. Thank you so much for giving us an explanation on the areas that the Health Equity Council focuses on. And I also wanna thank you for the work that you're doing because it's essential. Um, your mission and, and how passionate you are about your community. And it's the type of people and, and councils that we need um, to try to be in a better space and, and yeah, just live in a better, space and area as a community. Um, this summer, you trained the Leaders for Change Fellows on social determinants of health. Briefly explain what this means and why it is so important for young people to understand. Yeah, social determinants of health really are the things beyond your individual behavior. Often, we think of health as like 
you know, do I eat enough salad? Do I get enough sleep? Do I do enough exercise? Uh, but really it's, you know, do I have access to housing? Do I have access to education, public transportation? Uh, is my community poison free? Uh, you know, uh, is it safe for me to walk outside? You know, all of those things impact our health, right? And we, because the U.S. is such an individualistic society, we ignore those often and just focus on like, you know, do I go to the gym six times a week or not? When in reality, um, if, you know, housing, food, education, healthy work, uh, poison-free environment, all of that was available for everybody to the same amount, we wouldn't have to focus so much on exercise and diet and, and those things. They'd still be important, right? But they wouldn't be the, the only things we focus on. You know, we, could, we would be able to kind of look at how do we make sure everybody has access to things. And, and again, that's the social equity that I think we need to have health equity. Right, you're not just going to have um, people of one group have less diabetes by telling them to eat better. You know, they also need to have safe places to walk. Uh, stress is an issue for diabetes that we don't think about as much. We do more now than we used to, but it's a key factor for diabetes, right? As well as heart disease and violence and all of these other things. So, how do we make uh, the environment for folks less stressful. During the early part of the pandemic, because we're not over the pandemic yet, but uh, we're we're past the emergency stage. During the early part of the pandemic, right, the U.S. government gave people money um, to stay home, essentially, right? Here's, here's a little bit of money. And then there was also money given to people, you know, for children. And we reduced childhood poverty by 50%. And for some reason, government thinks, oh, we, we got to stop doing that. I don't know why we would want to increase childhood poverty. But it's clear that it's a policy choice because there was a policy that reduced it. And now we're changing the policy that's going to re-increase that. Instead of taking on the policy of like, how do we eliminate childhood poverty? It's clear that it's possible. You know, it's not that there's not money. It's that that money is not going to the right places, right? When the U.S. wants to bomb another country, there's very few people saying, how are we going to pay for that? But when you want to give free lunch to every child you know, in public school, all of a sudden it's like, how do we pay for that? There's bombs that are a million dollars per bomb. If we stopped bombing people and started feeding people, right, that would be easy. Yeah. Everything that you brought up, like, I kept thinking about my own family and my grandma. She suffered from so many like illnesses and arthritis. And sometimes she looks at other um, people who have her same age and they're a lot healthier. And I try to explain to her that it's because of the social determinants of health, which I learned from you um, last year and this year too. And how my grandma, she had seven children and she had to work she she didn't have the opportunity or the same resources as other people do and um, we are people of color and we've seen statistically that we have higher 
chances of getting many um, diseases that people suffer from. So I think it's really important for us to understand social determinants of health and so that we can pass the message to our families and the people that we know so that we can also fight for justice and social equity so that we don't continue this cycle of people of color suffering or being more prone to getting sick than other groups of people. Right. There was a study done in England. I believe the study was called the Whitehall study. And so it was people that worked in government jobs in England. So everybody had the same employer, the government. And what they found was that, you know, governments have rankings, you know, for each level of employment. And so basically, the higher in the hierarchy you were in, in government employee, the healthier you were. And it wasn't just like people that were managers were healthier than people that were laborers. It's like the top and the second in top had different health outcomes enough that it was measurable and you couldn't say it was random. You know, so even somewhere where you have universal health care, right, hierarchy makes a difference. And, you know, we may not be able to eliminate all hierarchy, but the flatter we may think, that's very important for us to realize that our health is impacted by so many other things. Uh, in this same study, your chances of heart disease were four times higher if you were, you know, near the bottom, you were working class. And it was four times more like that part of the hierarchy uh, impact was gonna predict four times better whether or not you had heart disease than whether or not you smoked. But we tell people all the time, you know, don't smoke. And I'm not gonna argue with that advice, but we don't tell people like, uh, end social hierarchy, right? Um, if you wanna be healthier. Uh, but that would actually have a larger impact. That's very interesting, but it doesn't surprise me because that's how it is. We have to change it though. Enrique, where can people find more information about the Health Equity Council? Probably the best place. Uh, we are on social media. Uh, and I don't remember all the, the handles off the top, but uh, Health Equity Council is on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And our website is uh, www.healthequitycouncil, all one word, .net. And and now I'm trying to remember if we have link, uh, the website linked to our social media. If not, we'll get that fixed. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we wrap up our conversation today? Yeah, I think right now what we're seeing with all of the unions going on strike is important because union coverage is strongly correlated to healthy population. So the more people that are in a union and covered by a union, the healthier a population becomes. You know, it's the same is true for like voter turnout and, and other things like that. But unions are especially key because it's the one way for people to take control of their work. And you can be, uh, as long as it's legal for you to work, you can be part of a union. So you don't have to wait till you're older. You can start supporting a union at your workplace, uh, regardless of your age. Uh, and I think it's really important, especially now that there are states uh, lowering the age to work in dangerous jobs. 
it's going to be more important for young people to think about unions and get involved. Thank you so much. For people who don't know a lot about unions and young people, can you explain what it is briefly? Sure. A union is a way that workers organize to equal out the power between them and the bosses. And again, it's another issue of equity and power, right? So the workers have a way to say like, it's not fair or it's not adequate that you pay us, you know, for example, you know, $15 an hour for this work that's dangerous. Uh, we should make more, you know, and it may be the way that we fix some of the housing problems where a lot of it is no one making minimum wage in any state in the U.S. can afford housing, right? And so if our minimum wage doesn't make it so people can have housing, you know, then we have workers who go to work but live in their car and they have a full-time job. And if anything just seems strange in a country like the U.S. is that somebody could work full-time and not afford a place to live. Uh, if anything, that should be a basic kind of guarantee. And it's not going to come from the top. It's going to have to come from working people and including young people. My grandparents paid $100 a month for their mortgage. And I know people now who are paying rent in a low quality apartment for $1,200 a month. And so, you know, there's a lot of work to do. And there's unions for uh, tenants as well. For folks who want to be fair with their, uh, have some power equitable uh, to their landlord, you know, that's another way to do that as well. Thank you so much for sharing that information. I didn't know there were unions for tenants too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Enrique, for coming back to Generation Justice and speaking to us today about health in New Mexico, about social determinants of health, and for the continued work that you do for our community and for the international district. Um, it's just so inspiring to see you and motivating. And I'm just excited that we get to work together at this time. I am as well. I hope we get to do some more. I hope we get to get some of the other uh, program specific staff from the council here and to talk to folks. And yeah, I hope we continue to partner with uh, Generation Justice and all, all the folks that work there and that the audience uh, gets involved as well. Thank you again, Enrique. Muchas gracias. For Generation Justice, I'm Barbara Ramirez. Thank you, Mr. Cardiel, for sharing this valuable information with us here at Generation Justice. I have had the honor to speak with you about health equity and social determinants of health before, for a school project. So I really want to acknowledge you always making this time to share your expertise and for helping to broaden my own knowledge as a nursing student, specifically about District 19. Your work, knowledge, and devotion is not only admirable, it is game-changing for your communities and for the health of our state. Thank you. Our guest, Enrique Cardiel, selected this song for you. Here is El Son del Obrero, by Gabino Palamares. Trabajador eres tú, trabajador también yo. Trabajador eres tú, trabajador también yo. Si seguimos separados nunca habrá revolución. Si seguimos separados nunca habrá revolución.
Katie Kerby is originally from Southwest Missouri. She's a fourth year medical student at the Latin American School of Medicine in Havana, Cuba. Katie holds a BA in Spanish with a focus in pre-med from the University of Indianapolis. This evening, Katie talks about her experience as a medical student in Cuba and shares more information about studying medicine debt-free. Here is GJ's Barbara Ramirez speaking with Katie Kirby. This is Barbara Ramirez with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Katie Kirby. Katie is a fourth-year medical student at the Latin American School of Medicine, Escuela Latinoamericana de Medicina in Havana, Cuba, where she studies medicine with people from over 100 different countries. She's originally from Southwest Missouri and has a bachelor's degree in Spanish with a focus in pre-med from the University of Indianapolis. Katie, welcome to Generation Justice. Hi, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me today. Please tell us more about yourself. Anything that I didn't mention in your bio? Yeah, so I, like you said, I am studying at the Latin American School of Medicine. I'm currently in fourth year. It's a seven-year program, and so it's a little bit different, um, but I'm over halfway. And so little by little, getting towards the goal, and I hope to become a doctor that will serve my community. Thank you so much, Katie, for being here and telling us more about yourself. I'm really curious to know, uh, why did you decide to attend the Latin American School of Medicine, and how did you learn about this opportunity? Yeah, so it was actually a really crazy coincidence on how I learned about the school. I actually learned about it from a professor at the University of Indianapolis, who just happened to be giving a presentation about health. And so she chose to present about the Latin American School of Medicine. And immediately, whenever I learned about it, and she started talking about it. I was so intrigued. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. Because as I learned about the Cuban program, I learned that their focus for healthcare is about the people. And their focus for healthcare is about a hands-on approach. And it's community-based learning that teaches your patients to trust the doctors. And in addition to that, they offer full scholarships to U.S. students who apply to Cuba. I think it's great that as soon as you learned about the Latin American School of Medicine, you were like, I know this is something I'm interested in. I want to learn more about it. And you actually went ahead and, and decided to attend. And I definitely agree. I feel like sometimes people don't know about other types of approaches in medicine because all they know is the U.S. system. But there's actually so much more. And countries like Cuba have great systems where people trust their doctors, where they trust the medical institutions and, and actually receive a much better health care than in other places. So tell us a little bit more about the program that you're in and how it works. Okay, so the program I'm in, it's actually the world's largest med school. And so a lot of people don't realize that Cuba has a med school that is world-renowned. And so I actually attend with people from over 100 different countries, and we all study in Spanish, which is most of our second language, if not third or fourth. And so you really form a bond with your fellow peers and you form a community because a lot of them are coming from places and we're all leaving our home and studying in a foreign country in a foreign language and studying a career that is not easy, quite frankly. And so it's 
been an incredible experience to get to know people around the world and to study medicine with them. And one of my biggest takeaways is, you know, becoming a doctor is just a small piece of what is happening, of what is going on in Cuba. But there, there's also an education that is a world education that I think is invaluable because you really learn about what's really going on in the world. And, you know, I have a friend from Syria and to be able to sit and talk to her about her perspective on what's going on in Syria and why, and say, this is what I saw in the news, but is this reality? And her to say, no, Katie, this is what's really going on. And to hear it from someone who knows their country and knows the reality that is just something that you can't get from not knowing a person. And so it's really forming a community that is a global community that is amazing. I think it's learning about the rest of the world is so important. And there's no one better than someone who is actually from there. You're not watching the news. It's someone who lived there and is telling you, this is how my country is. This is what's happening. And I feel like that's also something that you get to experience actually being in Cuba because there's so many negative narratives about Cuba and false narratives that we see and you have the opportunity to actually be, be there and see the good things and the not so good things that every country has also. Exactly. So you are visiting New Mexico for the first time. I would love to learn more about how this experience has been for you as a medical student. Yeah, so I would actually like to tell you a little bit about how I got here, because I think it's really in, important. So I actually got connected with a graduate who graduated from Cuba and now works in New Mexico, and he offered to help me set up some shadowing and internship opportunities here in New Mexico. And so it was really through the people I know from Cuba and that community that has been formed that I was able to come to New Mexico. And my experience here has been nothing less than amazing. I have been able to connect with three different doctors that have graduated from the program in Cuba and shadow them. And I've seen hospital experience, clinic experience, rural experience, um, low-income clinic experience. And so it's really a wide variety of experience that I've been able to take part in. And this is largely because of the people who I would consider family almost that graduated from the program that I am in right now. And then just making connections outside of that with people who you don't even know, but they're connected to Cuba. And they say, we believe in what you're doing and we believe in the program that you're in. And so we want to support you. I can't imagine how exciting it must be to see an actual doctor who went through the same experience that you're going through and actually see them like practicing and using everything that they know here. That sounds so inspiring and empowering too. And it's incredible because it's not just getting to see like any doctor, like you said, it's someone who went through what you know and what you're doing right now. But also these people are, these doctors, they're able to work in areas that they want to work in and they're able to do what they want to do because they don't have the debt associated with medical school. And so directly out of residency, they're able to help the communities that they want to help. And 
getting to work in a rural community, well, I guess I should say shadow in a rural community, that was one of the things that I really loved while I was here. And just seeing the possibility for that and not having to depend on how much you're going to make because you need to pay back the debt, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I I know there's like many students and people who don't know that there's more. It, it's mind-blowing to hear that a medical student is going through a program that's amazing where you get this cultural exchange, where you get exceptional preparation and no debt. It's like, I'm not from here and I know there's more, but there's students who, who don't know that that's actually an option for them or a possibility that they can explore. Exactly. And it's such a crazy opportunity and incredible and all around it just for me, it makes you a better person, but it's like, we don't even realize that these opportunities are out there and they are. And sometimes they seem like a dream. They seem like it's not possible that this can't be real. And I know that before I went to Cuba, I was like, is this real? Because it all seemed too good to be true, but now I'm in it and it is real and it's amazing. And it's really just more than I could have expected. It's amazing. And I'm also thinking about how if it's possible in other places to have this like amazing, exceptional preparation and like to get so much without being in such a great depth, it is possible to change things so that this can also happen here. And students from the United States um, can also have options like that here. So, I agree completely, yeah. especially because, you know, Cuba is a very poor country, but they're doing it. They're making it happen. And imagine if we could do the same thing here with the resources we have and really train people so that they can give back to their communities without them having to really stress and focus about all the money that they're going to have to pay back when they're done. Right. Katie, where can people find more information about the Latin American School of Medicine and the program that you're in? Yes. Yeah, so there's a couple things that they can do. The first one is they can look up IFCO, I-F-C-O, Pastors for Peace. They are the facilitators of the Cuba U.S. Medical School Scholarship. And so that is where you'll find questions, frequently asked questions, information on how to apply, and all of that. I am also more than happy to offer my information and let people get in touch with me if they have questions or would want to know more or know how to support the program. Thank you, Katie. You can go ahead and give your information if you want for people. All right. So you can find me on Instagram at K-A-T-I-E-K-E-A-R-B-E-Y, or you can email me at K-A-T-I-E-K-E-A-R-B-E-Y at gmail.com. Thank you so much for sharing that. What is your message to young people who are considering pursuing a career in medicine or who might be interested in the program that you just talked to us about? I would say the first thing I would tell them and encourage them would be to figure out your why. Why do you want to study medicine? And no matter whether you choose to study here or in Cuba, don't lose your why. Because your why is what gets you through on the hard days whenever you say, I don't know if I can do this anymore. 
but if you always remember why you're doing it, then you'll be okay. And, you know, medicine is not an easy field, but it is so rewarding. And so I would say, make sure that you just remember why you're doing it and don't lose sight of that even on the hard days. Such an inspiring message. Thank you so much, Katie. Is there anybody or that you want to thank or give a shout out to at this moment? Yes, I would love to. So I would love to thank New Mexico, the community that I have made here and formed here and the people, specifically Dr. Carmen Landau for being the first one to really invite me to New Mexico and shadow here. I'd also like to sh thank IFCO Pastors for Peace for being the facilitators of this scholarship and giving me this opportunity. I'd like to thank Cuba because I would not be here without Cuba and its people. And then last, but certainly not least, I'd like to thank you all at Generation Justice for giving me this opportunity today. Thank you so much for saying yes and, and being here with us and sharing this important information with all of our listeners. I really admire what you're doing and, and it sounds so exciting that you have gotten to have these amazing opportunities and, and to learn from people from over 100 countries. That's mind blowing to me. It all sounds so exciting. So thank you so much for being here with us, for taking the time to speak with us. I really want to thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. I hope that if nothing else, there's one person out there that learns something or has a takeaway about medicine or just helping people, honestly, and doing what they want to do in the world. Thank you so much. For Generation Justice, I'm Barbara Ramirez. Katie. I really want to thank you for sharing this wonderful opportunity for students interested in med school. And it just seems so grounded in care for the patient and fostering knowledge through a worldwide perspective. The strength you will bring as a doctor from this experience will be invaluable. Thank you so much. Our next song was chosen by Katie Kerby. This is I Didn't Know My Own Strength by Whitney Houston. I didn't know my own strength and I crashed down and I tumbled but I did not crumble I got through all the pain I didn't know my own strength survived my darkest hour my faith kept me alive I picked myself back up hold my head up high I was not built to it is time for our vaccine equity segment, New Mexico. All signs point to a late summer COVID wave, according to Axios. Experts warn the U.S. is lacking critical tools to help manage future waves. The average COVID-19 hospitalization rate nationwide rose about 17% between June and July, according to the latest available CDC data. The CDC has been tracking the variant EG.5, a descendant of the Omicron variant. According to Yale Medicine, the World Health Organization, WHO, has classified EG.5 as a variant of interest, which means countries should monitor it more closely than other strains because of mutations that could make it more contagious or severe. Make sure you stay safe and protect your community by following COVID protocols. If you are not up to date with your vaccinations, visit vaccinenm.org and schedule an appointment today to get the bivalent vaccine. Don't forget to wash your hands frequently, wear a KN95 mask, and practice social distancing to 
prevent the spread of COVID-19. Tune in next week for more vaccine equity and COVID updates. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of health equity education. We'd like to thank our guests, Enrique Cardiel and Katie Kerby. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Roberta Rael and Barbara Ramirez, with production assistance from Roman Garcia. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. And follow our playlist on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Con Alma Health Foundation, the New Mexico Department of Health, Infectious Disease Bureau through the Better Together Program, and Office of School and Adolescent Health, as well as the City of Albuquerque, Race Forward, Media Justice, and of course, all of you who contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Our last song of the night is Truth to Power by One Republic. I am Lily Lukau. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word. So stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, New Mexico.